0: Hey y'all, welcome to The Call-Up. My name is Sean Kelly. This is our first ever podcast. This is Connect Savannah's new podcast. I'm the arts and entertainment editor at Connect. Really excited about this and I'm really glad that y'all are tuning in. I've um, never done this before. Uh, quite frankly, don't really know what the format's going to be yet. But we're just going to kind of roll with it and see what happens. Um, you know, I do a lot of really interesting interviews and I thought it would be really cool to just kind of Uh, have another platform for airing maybe parts of the interview that you didn't get to read and print and that sort of thing, and I'm just really excited to see where it takes us and um, just really glad that y'all are along for the ride. Uh, A little bit about me, I'm the, um, as I said, the arts and entertainment editor at Connect. uh, I'm the new guy, and uh, also a musician myself. Um, I have a studio on Broughton Street called Low Watt Recording that I uh, run with Ted Comerford, a producer, and my bandmate Brendan. I'm the singer in a band called A Fragile Tomorrow. I've been playing music since I was four years old. It's all I do. It's my entire life, and uh, this is kind of an extension of that. I I really love talking to musicians and artists, and so this is what that this that's what this is is me talking to musicians and artists, and uh, I think it's it's going to be really fun to just kind of see what happens and where it uh, where it goes from here today. You're going to be hearing three different interviews that I've done. Um, my uh, One interview that I'm really excited about is uh, I got the chance to talk to my friend Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls. Um, Amy Ray is somebody I've known. I've known Amy for about 10 years. I met Amy in an alley in Kingston, New York um, 10 years ago when I was like 16, 15 or 16. And uh, she's been an incredible friend and supporter for a decade she's an amazing unbelievable songwriter she's just a complete legend in her own right um she has this amazing new. she's made like seven solo records and she's kind of done it all her first couple solo records were like straight up punk records and super super fun um and the last two records she's done have are country records and her new one uh holler is is pretty unbelievable it's um it's kind of like a call back to the sixties, like kind of late sixties, um, kind of, I would classify it as almost R and B country kind of stuff. Um, you know, incorporating horns and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, like wurlitzers and that kind of thing. And it's just a more soulful kind of country music. Um, it's just a really incredible record. Vince Gill is on it. Brandy Carlisle's on it. Uh, a lot of amazing people. And, and she's incredible and, um Indigo Girls are were one of my favorite bands growing up and to become friends with them and get to tour with them a lot was has always been, it's just a, it's just a great beautiful thing and they're just amazing people and um the cool thing about Amy is that she's just I think she really also loves the DIY kind of thing too and so her solo thing she gets to you know drive a van and all that kind of stuff and it's it's the entirely opposite end of the spectrum of sort of the big machine of Indigo Girls and Um, it's cool to see, I've seen her in both capacities and it's cool to see her like setting up her own gear and that kind of thing. It makes you sort of feel like, oh, cool. There's a place for, you know, smaller bands when, when people like Amy who are on this sort of larger scale of, you know, um, you know, recognition or whatever, like it's, it's cool. It's cool to, to see her kind of playing in smaller places and, and kind of doing a smaller scale thing um she does it so so wonderfully and um anyway we're gonna air part of that conversation i I did that interview at home i did not do it here in the studio i'm coming to you by the way from low watt recording on broad street uh and um did not do my interview with amy here because i had some issues with pro tools and all that kind of stuff of course but came out good enough i'm gonna show you some parts of that i'm really excited about it we're also talking to um a guy named parker gispert from a band called the wigs um i've been a fan of the wigs for a long time i've seen them a couple times and just an incredible band parker has a new solo record coming out um it's his first solo record first foray into solo music it's uh, what i've heard from it is really really beautiful so i got the chance to talk to him he's playing at el rocco lounge um on i believe october 12th um, and that's gonna be a really great show, he's just an unbelievable songwriter, and I also talked to a folk singer named Maria Moldauer, uh, she's a legend, she's, gosh, she came up in the Greenwich Village folk scene in the 60s, weirdly, um, my cousin, my third cousin, so this would be my grandmother's first cousin on my father's side, was a folk singer in the 60s, Richard Farina was his name, and, uh, And he passed away in in probably 1967, 68, something like that. So I never knew him, but I grew up knowing his music. He put out a lot of great records with his his wife Mimi. They were a duo. Um, Put out some amazing stuff on Vanguard Records, just like really incredible folk music that was kind of ahead of the curve a little bit. And and weirdly, Maria, I found out after scheduling the talk with her that um, she actually was really close friends with with Richard, um, so it was kind of a trip to, like, hear about that a little bit, um, we didn't get a chance to really touch on that in the interview, but we did talk about her new record, which is um, a collection of songs written by Blue Lou Barker, who was a blues singer from New Orleans, a legendary blues singer, and the record is just really, really great, it's um, recorded in New Orleans, she did a song uh, from 1973, Three called Midnight at the Oasis, um, and it was a huge hit. And she's had this just incredible career, um, just has known everyone, played with everyone, just kind of done everything. And she's a beautiful voice, incredible artist. Um, and we, we got a chance to talk to her. And I don't think uh, this will come out prior to her show at the Tybee Post Theater, um, but there is a print interview up. You can read it on ConnectSavannah.com. Um, and this will just give us a chance to, you know, you'll hear about her record a little more and maybe you want to go buy it. Um, it's it's really great. So three really cool interviews today. Um, I'm just really excited to kind of get this thing going. Who knows where it'll take us. Um, I You know, there's so many things I'd like to try in this format. And um, But for now, I appreciate you all kind of bearing with me and seeing where this goes. Um, so let's get started with Maria Moldauer. Um she talked to me a lot about her new record, um, which, again, is just a wonderful, wonderful collection. A lot of great New Orleans musicians were on it. And uh, and I, I asked her about uh, kind of how it started. And weirdly, it, it kind of started with, um, with her first album all the way back in 1973. So let's listen to that little bit of Maria Moldauer.
1: In 1973, when I was out in California making my first solo album, you know, I found myself in the studio with all the great greatest players. Anyone I asked for, they would just get. Those were the days, and you know, I was in the studio with Rye Cooter mm-hmm. and you know David Lindley, Lindley and Chip yeah. Helper, and uh, my favorite uh, Doctor John. So he was he was playing piano on quite a few of the cuts, and he. Um, as the process was going along he he thought of this song that he knew that was originally written and recorded in the very early 40s by a wonderful uh blues woman from new orleans named blue lou barker Mm -hmm. and uh he just thought i think he heard my voice and kind of my sort of musical sensibilities and just thought it would be a good fit and so he played me a recording of it and it was wonderful and really fun and so we recorded it and um as meanwhile, on the album, uh, there was a goofy little song about a camel uh, called Midnight at the Oasis. And that was a song that became a huge, huge hit. Yeah. Because that song, you know, their song was on the album. It was an album cut, Don't You Feel My leg? They were owed a lot of royalty money, and when we went to pay that, we asked the publishing company that you know was listed, and they said, "Oh, they're deceased. Just send the money to us." Oh, geez. So we told Doctor Chan about that, and he said, "Deceased? <laughs> the fuck they are?" He said, "I just seen them down on Boybin Street three weeks ago." Oh my so God. So he got us, he got us the correct address, and we sent them the first of many nice, fat, juicy royalty checks Mm -hmm. and they were very grateful about that and so when i came when i was touring behind that first album uh and played in new orleans they came and saw us and we became good friends and um they being danny barker who was a wonderful uh rhythm guitar player and played for people like cab calloway and Louis armstrong and billy Holiday, just to name a few and so anyway, so we remained friends all through the years. And I'd visit them every time I went there. And they both sadly passed away, in, both in their late 80s, uh, in, the, in the late 90s. So strangely enough, even though Midnight at the Oasis was was the song that was you know, nominated for Grammys and was a hit all over the world and so forth. To this day, the song I get the most requests for is Don't You Feel My Leg. Wow. So I always do it. At, I always do it at concerts and yeah. so forth. People want to hear it. So a couple of years ago, I get a call from uh, some folks in New Orleans and they, um, they said we're doing a tribute. Well, they put together a little festival honoring Danny Barker because not only was he a great musician, but he mentored a lot of the younger generation of musicians coming up, including the Rebirth Brass Band and a lot of. Uh, he he really made it a point in his later years to teach a lot of the up-and-coming musicians the old New Orleans music tradition. Mm-hmm. So, so so as part of that festival, they thought it would be cool if I gave a tribute concert to Blue Lou Barker, his wife. So I thought it was a great idea, and I started looking for tunes. And I, I knew a few of her other tunes besides Don't You Feel My Lake, but I, I really wasn't that familiar with that many of them. So we started delving around and looking for a lot more of her material. And to my delight, I discovered that they had written and recorded dozens of songs, equally naughty, body you know, funny and clever as Don't You Feel My Leg. And so I put together a couple of hours worth of great material and went to New Orleans, hired a, just an all-star band of great players, and we did this sold-out concert, and we got a wonderful response. And after the show, everyone swarmed up to the CD table and said, well, which is the CD that has the material we just heard? And, um, and it, it was in that moment we realized that, uh, we should record this material and share it with with the world
0: was the like the process of making this record was it was it sort of a thing where you kind of went down there and and all those same people sort of knew all the material and and you just kind of jumped in and and or was it a lot of pre-production was it a lot of planning like like how much how much of the process was just like spontaneous and kind of organic and stuff like that?
1: Well, the playing is very spontaneous and organic. Yeah. But a lot of pre-planning went into it uh, on my part. I got together with my keyboard player, Chris Burns, in California, and we delved around. And, um, you know, he's very adept at finding things on the Internet. And so we found all these songs. And many of the players themselves, of course, Don't You Feel My Leg is her most famous song. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but... Uh, the players themselves, a lot of them were not familiar with some of these other titles, but they just loved it. I mean, because it, it cracked them up. I mean, there's titles like Lone Me Your Husband" and <laughs> "Bowlegged Daddy" and "Handy Anthony. and you know, uh, and and uh, it's been, it's very tongue-in-cheek and and um, kind of humorous. It's a very playful expression of sexuality. Mm-hmm as opposed to the almost dead deadly serious over you know fraught dialogue that's going on today sure but um musically well a lot of the stuff was actually recorded uh, Lulu and Danny Barker moved up to New York for a while in the late 30s early 40s and a lot of these recordings were recorded with some of New York's finest the originals of course were uh, were recorded by some of using some of New York's finest jazz players at the time but because they were from New Orleans it still had a New Orleans flavor or sensibility to it but there's also a New York vibe going on in the music and i um, you know, I like to think that, well, this music all emerged in New York in the early 40s, and so did I, and so I have a natural affinity for it. Sure. Um, And just as a footnote, speaking of their time in New Orleans, I mean, in New York, uh, one of the people that Danny Barker played with uh, and recorded with was Billy Holiday. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing research, you know, he, I knew them as friends, but when I really started to dig into their history and so forth, I found to my surprise that Billie Holiday is quoted as saying that Blue Lou Barker was her biggest influence. Wow. I, I know, did not know that. An, I did not know that. And I, you know, I thought I knew them pretty well, you know, right. so it's, but when you listen to Blue Lou's recordings, you can hear it. It's unmistakable because Blue Lou had this very, she wasn't like a blues belter or shouter at all. She had a very ladylike crisp kind of laid back. Her diction was perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, she, um, what, what do I want to say? Kind of a, a very laid back, understated way of singing. And with a very kind of almost sly in, in, in innuendo to, to how she delivered the lyrics and, and I, after listening, hearing that quote and then listening, I could perfectly well see how, how she was an influence on Billie Holiday. So, sure. you know, that's the reason people, everyone, even, you know, a young 21-year-old kid would know who Billie Holiday is, but not know who Blue is. And so that's one of the reasons I like to do, you know, when I decide to make a tribute album, to try to shine a light on these great artists who maybe are not as well-known as they should be, and yet were some of the seminal, you know, influences in our, you know, that that run through our music to this day.
0: That was a really fun conversation. Uh, she's, she's amazing. She's a trip. It's really cool to, like, hear uh, about her record, and, you know, she's kind of done it all. Um, she was around in sort of this, like, kind of renaissance of of this well not really a renaissance like a you just this really great period in in the music industry where kind of anything went and anything you imagined could be would be so like her first record just had all these incredible musicians on it like this sort of dream list of people that i mean as as a musician you sort of like you you know you think of jim keltner and you, you it's it's like a you know unattainable thing, but she was, at the time, anybody she wanted, she could she could tell the label she wanted them, and she could have them on the record. And that's kind of cool to like to talk to somebody like that, who sort of lived through that really wonderful, and long-since-past <laughs> period in, in music. Um, I want to play one more part of her interview, because it was really, really kind of crazy to hear this, but um, as she was talking to me, she was in her tour bus, and she passed a a billboard of George Harrison and it reminded her of a story she had about an encounter she had with George Harrison, which is like, it's just weird to hear somebody talking about casually uh, George Harrison of the Beatles being a fan of your music. It's just like one of those things you just go, I can't believe I'm speaking to somebody who, who was in that world, who would have been like well in that world and enough uh, for somebody of George Harrison's stature to be like a fan it's just kind of crazy she's it, she, I mean she I bet she has a million stories like that that she didn't even probably scratch the surface so I just want to play that part of it because I thought it was just such an amazing sort of thing to hear and it's sort of like really it. it's one of those stories you hear that really energizes you as an artist um, so here's that that little bit from my conversation with her
1: he came up to me one time and told me a song, a Kate McGarrigal song I had recorded called, ah, uh, uh, what was it called? A Cool River. He said, his, he said his mom was very, very ill with a very painful kind of cancer and he'd go to visit her every day in the hospital and stay as long as he could. And then when she finally would go to bed, he'd come home and he'd be so extremely depressed and sad. And he said he just put that song on and play it over and over, and it really helped get him through. Wow. And I was, just, I was just floored. And the fact that he was George Harrison, that's just gravy. If it had been Joe Blow telling me that, and it often has been, you know, just some person in the audience or whatever, it's it's, it's sort of, it's made me take very seriously, the, you know, the task that I have a, like a duty to choose songs that are uplifting to people. These are really dark times. And in previous, you know, years, I mean, I always have a good band and I always try to sing my best and I always try to have good material. And so we, we generally are very well appreciated for our shows and people come up and say, oh, I love your voice or oh, your guitar player's just great. You know, the usual kind of appreciative remarks Now people come up after the show and grab me by the arm and look me in the eye and say, thanks. We really needed that.
0: Yeah. Maria Moldauer, um, please go get, don't you feel my leg? The, the new record of blue Lou Barker songs. It's, it's really fun. It's really great. It's really well produced, really well recorded. It's super interesting. It's just, it's just a great record. Um, so next up is my interview with Parker Gisbert from The Wigs. Uh, he, he's just like, in, just an unbelievable songwriter. I, I can't say enough great things. Um, it was really cool to like to hear him sort of talk about his history with the band, and it's it's nice to hear from someone who's sort of seen it all um, in terms of starting from the ground up and building a band, and really, really committing yourself to being in a band. Because I think a lot of people don't really realize what a commitment it is to really give your life to something like that and, and build something out of it. Um, and they certainly did the wigs they have done. I mean, they've accomplished so much and torped some of the great, great people and made incredible records. And, um, you know, he's, he sort of has really, really done it all and seen every aspect of, of this life that he's chosen. And, uh, now he's making the solo record. It's really beautiful. It's, it's super opposite end of the spectrum from anything that that the wigs did. And there's traces of of wigs in his songwriting. I think it's just it will always be there, but um it's really different. It's really unique and it's really really beautiful. Um he will be at El Rocco Lounge. Um coming up. So if you're in town, you better show up for that. It's it's going to be really great. I'll be there. Um he's just one of the he's just one of the best there is right now. So, uh, you don't want to miss that. And here is my interview with Parker Gisbert. I've 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 been a fan of the Wigs for years. I, I I saw you guys at uh, the Poorhouse in Charleston a couple times. Um, oh, dope. I, yeah, I, I lived there for for six years before I moved here. Um, so I've been, you know, kind of a big fan for for several several records at least. So, um,
2: Thank you, man, I appreciate that. Yeah. Much. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So. Um, I, I, I kind of want to start maybe well um, well let's kind of start like when the solo thing kind of took off because you guys kind of decided like last year that you weren't really gonna play as much or, or kind of do do less right is that is, is that kind of how it how it started with, with the solo project?
2: It, um, it was sort of just like a gradual thing where we had modern creation was our last studio album. And then um, Tim, we toured on that for a little over a year. Tim started playing with Grace Potter. Now he plays with Kings of Leon. Mm-hmm. Um, Julian started playing with Eagles of Death Metal. And then Karen Nelson. Now he does like Band of Skulls and Lone Bellow. Um, so they were doing different things. And we were still trying to like do wigs dates around that. And... Um, you know I I just wanted to be playing more shows and I wanted to be working on a new record and it just sort of occurred to me that like if I wanted to do that stuff that I needed to just like they had found their own things outside of the band like I needed to do the same thing and um and so that's really where it got started so it wasn't so much of like a line of delineation that like we necessarily like sat down and like had a talk or anything. It was more right. just like, you know, the light bulb sort of went off like, yo, um, it's time for that solo thing that you've maybe thought about before, but the timing was never right or whatever. It was sort of like kind of became obvious that this was the time that I was going to need to um, give it a good go. So that's, yeah, I'd say at the end of, end of 2016 started uh started writing the record and uh and getting out and doing solo shows
0: is that is that kind of a weird feeling like i mean because i've i've been in sort of a similar situation with the band i've been in for years too where like everybody kind of starts doing other things and and it and you sort of realize at some point like you may need to branch out and it, I mean, that kind of has to be a weird feeling because I would assume that it's been so much a part of who you are for so long. I mean, is that, is that, is that fair to say that it was just kind of a, like, was it kind of an adjustment at first to, to sort of like say, okay, now I can kind of call the shots or was it a weird feeling to, to sort of move forward and do, do something entirely different?
2: It was, um, yeah, you nailed it. I mean, it's, it, it took a second for me to even like see it. Like I think everybody else saw it probably before I did. And, um, you know, I've been playing in the band since I was a teenager. Um, and yeah, it's just been what I've done for so long that, um, and and we've been through the various points where, you know, maybe somebody left the group or maybe there would be like a second of like uh oh what's going on or what the hell's happening right now and, right. and we would just power through it um and i think that by default that's kind of where i assumed it was and it was just going to be something that like we powered through and and uh and what kind of became obvious to me was just sort of like we had put so much pressure on the band um to sort of like be the entirety of like our our musical existence for such a long time that, that by doing these other things, like by them playing with other people or by me doing solo stuff that, um, you know, we've still been doing shows. Like we did a handful of shows this year. Um, We played last week. Um, It's actually like put less pressure on the band and sort of taking the band back to like more where it was at its infancy when it was just like this great fun thing that like maybe your life didn't totally depend on or something right it um and so it's been actually like really healthy for the band um but for whatever reason i had always thought of it as being like something that was going to take away from the band or 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 whatever and um but yeah it, it it was weird um at first to wrap my head around the fact that like i was gonna need to strike out on my own and um and and do something solo but but luckily, uh, it was comforting as I started taking some baby steps, just realizing, like, I knew what to do. You know, Like yeah. I had been playing for so long and been writing and recording and touring for so long that, um, you know, if there was like a fork in the road or if I found myself like an unfamiliar territory, I had enough prior experience to sort of be like, uh, no, you actually sort of know what what to do here and like you know you you got this it's gonna be all right
0: um well it's 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 interesting that you know you were kind of talking about like how right now playing playing in the band is sort of like it feels like when you were teenagers and just it's like it's, it's this fun thing and there's not you know so much of of what gets people bogged down is like the industry side of things in particular and just like yeah the whole making it your 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 every move has to be about the 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 band so like that that sense of like sort of freedom and and feeling kind of more relaxed about it do you think that like informed the solo project at all like is that is that sort of how you like is that kind of your attitude now with, with the solo project now that the the band is kind of back to being something where it's like ah we can just have fun and and not have so many expectations or feeling weighed down by the industry is that kind of how is that your attitude with the solo project
2: yeah the uh the the solo thing is um I don't know kind of what I was saying about sort of like knowing what to do it's it's just like um I I just I I feel confident in myself as a writer and as a performer and um I just I, I think it's like the best I think it's actually like the best thing for me to be, to be doing the solo thing. And I I think I was lucky that I had almost 20 years of, of playing in a group, a small group um, where I was out front, like being the singer and the primary songwriter and doing all that stuff. But I I had a support group. And um, now that I'm really just out doing it on my own, um, I'm just, liberated to really focus on the art focus on the performance focus on the writing yeah all the things that are the most essential parts of like the musical project i'm just thinking about those things and those things only and i'm not you know dealing with like a group dynamic and you know how something i do might affect another person or Mm -hmm you know, what, um,
0: or just the politics of vote on voting on decisions and stuff like that, even totally, exactly.
2: Yeah. Like all that stuff is out the window Yeah. and, um, even like industry stuff. And I've been pretty good about that in the past, like not really going to that place mentally and, um, and definitely with this also, it's, it's, it's um, it's just sort of like getting back to like the primal sort of beginning impetus for like wanting to like make music and like be an artist which is like i want to write a bunch of songs um kind of strike out in a different musical direction record them put out a solo album go tour on that record um and genuinely have like no expectations in terms of um you know what it's gonna quote unquote do for my career right whatever it's just like a genuine love of like i don't know where any of this is going i just you know really want to make some beautiful music and um you know put my my stamp or like put my name on this collection of songs um and get out there and share it with people and hopefully um hopefully get it in some people's ears
0: yeah so when you were writing this um did you have a kind of a concept in mind or like a or like a you know general direction that was i mean because it's so it's so much of it is so different from from the wigs and i'd imagine that was somewhat purposeful And, and yeah i i feel like you know a song like through through the canvas is like kind of a perfect perfect example of like the complete opposite end of the spectrum in terms of what your what your writing style is so was that was that like totally intentional and what what was that process like of sitting down to write and 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 do something entirely on on
2: your own well i think like in the last few years of the band like um i had sort of doubled down on just like my skill set like i i was taking more and more time to work on my voice work on my guitar playing um just sort of thinking like, hey, I've been in the band for a long time, like I've devoted a large portion of my life to this at this point. And like, I just want to be better on a fundamental level as a singer and like as a guitar player. And I I really started working on my skills a lot. Um, And so when it came time to do the solo thing, it seemed like a perfect time for me to like really explore where I was at vocally or as a guitar player and um without having the drums and bass of the band to project over i like we're a really loud band on stage and stuff like singing in a falsetto range or even singing in a lower range they just don't really work in right. the wigs and um and before the band started like when i was in high school and um like i had always experimented like with falsetto or like seeing in these different registers and so it just seemed like all right this is my opportunity to uh explore my vocal range try different things vocally and as a guitar player and so just on a fundamental level i i wanted to play acoustic guitar not play the electric guitar um and then just challenge myself uh in both those respects uh, yeah. as a vocalist and as a guitar player. And and that was pretty much my, my jumping off point
0: yeah. For, for the record. So what were some of the like influences, like were there, I mean, were there certain artists that you were like, Oh yeah, I kind of want to do this kind of record or this sort of genre or that kind of thing.
2: Well, I'd say I listened to a decent amount of stuff that like doesn't really have drums at the forefront Um, and initially I, I kind of wanted there to be almost no drums. I think there's drums on like three of the songs on the record. Um, But uh, specifically musically, I mean, honestly, nothing that direct is sort of a culmination of like, a lot of things that just were not influences for the band directly that had always been a big part of like my foundation musically, which are pretty obvious ones like near young or yeah. Joni Mitchell or like the Nick Drake's or Leonard Cohen's or Bob Dylan's or, you know, just pretty obvious stuff like that. Uh, Fred Neil, um, probably a big one in there would be Fred Neal. Yeah. Um, but just things that like you might not hear on a Wiggs record, and and a lot of them, like I was saying, um, in terms of just like challenge my, myself and my skill set and trying new things, like I had never messed with different tunings. Um, as far as contemporaries go, like there's this guy Steve Gunn I like a lot, mm-hmm. and um, Riley Walker, um, and I would just like get on the internet and. Look for new tunings, and uh, I'd find a new tuning on the acoustic guitar, like a Johnny Mitchell tuning or a tuning Riley had used on a record or something. And then I would just kind of mess around that tuning, and before I knew it, I sort of had like, um, you know, riff going on or something. Mm-hmm.
0: Is that and is that hard to to kind of pull off live? I feel like every time I write something in in a new tuning, it's like an excuse to buy another guitar to play live. <laughs> so I kind of yeah. yeah
2: yeah no I I started kind of making this joke during my shows about how like as a kid I would see these you know the new young types with like twelve guitars on stage and like I just thought like what a dick you know yeah. just like showing me all <laughs> his cool guitars and then I was like no nah, they're all like in different tunings you know it's um, it's
0: more it's 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 more practical <laughs> than I think people realize right. so the the last thing that i i kind of want to talk about and it's just something that um caught my eye when i was reading the bio for the new record um it's just something i'm curious about so you wrote with alice cooper
2: yeah I wrote how, how did that happen um so there's a producer his name is bob Ezrin. he yeah. produced like the wall by pink floyd mm-hmm. and Lou Reed, Berlin, and and my favorite my my
0: favorite Jayhawks record too, I believe. The, not oh, those. cool!
2: Yeah. Um, and he's actually been living in Nashville, and he has a studio. And he's Canadian. He's from Toronto originally, I believe. And one of our band's managers is also from Toronto. And I think when the band was doing "Enjoy the Company," which we ended up working with John Agnello on, yeah our manager at the time who we no longer work with was like hey you should consider Bob Ezrin he lives in Nashville he's great and um, at that point we had already sort of decided we wanted to work with John but I definitely like you know remember hearing like Bob Ezrin and anybody I would ask about him like John Agnello or Uh, Rob Schnaff, who we had worked with before, they would all be like, yeah, that guy's like my hero. They always had like amazing things to say about him. So at some point, I just reached out to my manager who's Canadian and was like, hey, do you know this guy? I think he's in Nashville. Maybe we could link up or something. And so they reached out. I went over and met him and um, really liked him. He's just really smart person and very cool guy. Um, He's just so on it and like up to date in 2018, like knows everything that's going on. And um, I mean, I don't know why I would suspect any different, but um, so yeah, I just really hit it off with them and liked them. And uh, he reached out at some point relatively randomly and just said that they were doing a new Alice Cooper album. And that if I had anything that I felt would work for the record to send it his way. And I was on tour at the time and I, I tried to like write what I thought would be like a cool Alice Cooper song and I sent it to him and it just like wasn't that great of a song. Um, (laughs) And I've heard it a million times, but it's easy to forget. It's like, in those types of scenarios, it's like they're not looking for your imitation of like an Alice Cooper song. You know, it's like um, they might be looking for, what you do. Um, and at the time I had written a few songs for my, for my album, Sunlight Tonight. Um, and at the time I thought that I wanted to call it uh welcome to my public meltdown. <laughs> and I had like been kind of experimenting with my pictures on Instagram and stuff. And some people I hadn't talked to in a long time, probably thought I was just like losing my mind or something. And, <laughs> right and uh it was sort of like this whole concept that was like you know come see the meltdown live and like you know uh it was it was the title track to my record basically and i had a song called welcome to my public meltdown and and, uh alice has a song uh welcome to my nightmare yeah and i just thought the titles were similar and i almost whimsically was just like fuck it i'll send him this one too and like you know, maybe a month after I'd sent him the first jam, I sent him that one. And when I sent him that one, they were like, oh, we love this. Um, you know, uh, this is killer. Um, do you care if Alice rewrites the lyrics and uh, we may be like at a bridge or whatever? And I was like, ah, oh, do whatever. And wow. Um, I kind of like forgot about it. Honestly, like a few months went by and I sort of just, it seemed like a little too good to be true. Right. Almost. And, um, and it was just pretty funny. Like, you know, however many months later it was like, Oh, we cut the song and Larry Mullen from YouTube plays drums on it. And Holy uh, shit. you're like, <laughs> and just like hearing him sing it. And uh, he wrote amazing lyrics to it. Like I really loved the, Lyrics that that Alice wrote to it, and wow. and so then I went down to the studio and I played like the guitar solo on the recording and met Alice and uh, me and Alice and Bob like got on the mic together and sang some background vocals and went and ate Baja burrito together, which was pretty cool. And um, man, and I've never done anything like that. Like I've never written a song on somebody else's record or whatever. Right. Or co-written a song. So that's that's pretty awesome.
0: That's incredible. That's like like one of those things that you just sort of, I mean, I'd imagine you you just never thought anything like that would ever happen. I mean, it's just one of those things you don't think about, you know?
2: Yeah. You don't think about it. And, and kind of randomly I'd become like a pretty huge fan of Alice's music and in the like kind of ever since that, Bob Esmond thing came up and they're like, Oh, he produces Alice Cooper. And I was like, I don't, I've never really listened to his records that much. Like, I don't. And when I pulled him up, it just blew my mind, like how complex they were. Yeah, like, there's some really cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not,
0: like, it, 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 he's one of those guys that I think, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people like this where you sort of hear the hits or whatever. And, and, and people don't really know that it kind of goes a lot further than that, just musically and sonically and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, he's, he's on that list for me of people like that for sure. Yeah.
2: And it's like, um, it's almost like vaudeville. It's just like this, um, you know, this entity of like Alice Cooper and, you know, he's Vincent as a human being and like, he's sort of just created this entire amazing like persona and, um, you know, character that um and he's a he's been married for like thirty five years. The same woman has like a great family, like loves golf, you know, has been sober for a long time. Like he's kind of avoided a lot of like the destruction of like his peers and like people that he came up with and has ended up like having like a nice life, you know, and um I don't know, I just found it like super inspiring and it also gave me a lot of confidence just like at that particular point I hadn't recorded anything yet for the album and I was still writing and um I don't know if Bob picked up on it or whatever but definitely super grateful to him because it you know at the time like the band wasn't really doing anything and I was sort of taking a big leap of faith giving the solo thing a go and it at least like gave me some confidence in myself like yo like you you
0: know you kickstarted can, it maybe a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like these are real guys. Like you're you're in the mix with these guys like you know you can do this. Yeah. You know you're not you're a good writer like so it was cool.
0: That's that's amazing man. Well, I'm super excited for the show. I'm super excited for the record and I just really appreciate you chatting with me man. I it, it's super fun talking to you and kind of getting to hear about all this and everything I've heard so far from from the solar record is just it just sounds beautiful just just sounds amazing i'm really, really looking forward to the show and uh the record is out november 16th is that right yes sir parker gispert thanks again parker uh man so the, i mean it's it's really fun to like play these back and um and and get to give you guys kind of a glimpse of like A lot of the stuff that we talk about and um and again like stuff that you know may not make it to print and stuff like that it's it's just it's fun to to get to have another platform for all these interviews i'd love to hear what you guys think about what sort of things would make this more interesting um you know i'd love eventually if we got some people in the studio to sort of play live and and really have one-on-one conversations um um i think this is just a good starting kind of jumping off point for that so we'll, we'll we'll see where it goes um all right, let's get to my conversation with Amy. She's, again, I've known her, full disclosure, personally for 10 years. She's just a wonderful person. She's given me a lot of opportunities in music that I wouldn't otherwise have gotten um, because she really believes in artists and and nurturing younger artists. And um, I mean, I was literally a kid when she kind of entered my world. And uh, we had a lot of mutual friends, and it just sort of was a very natural thing that happened and she's supported my family and my band for so long and um I can't thank her enough for that she's just an unbelievable person and honestly one of the most brilliant songwriters you'll ever hear in your life um her new record Holler is unbelievable it's really 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 I can't I cannot recommend it enough um it's just it's one of those things that like you sort of you know, you, you listen to a record like that. And from my perspective, anyway, I, you know, it's hard to be a fan of country music. And I mean, real country music, because there's so much, I don't know, there's so much in the mainstream right now that's calling itself country that just kind of isn't. It's sort of masked pop music. Um, You know, and it's, and there's a place for that. But uh, there's a, a select kind of group of artists right now that are really sort of bringing that, the real kind of um, sort of, you know, roots Americana, real country music back. Um, and the last two records Amy's done have, I believe are a huge part of that resurgence. Um, and so you you'll get to hear her kind of talk about that a bit and, you know, her kind of DIY approach to the solo projects and that kind of thing, and um, yeah, she's it's a, it was a really great conversation, and it was just great to catch up with her because she's just a, such a good person, and uh, and again, did not record it here in the studio, um, so it's, you know, maybe not as hi-fi as the other interviews, but I think it's worth sharing because she's just, she's got a lot of great things to say, and she's a really insightful person, so this is my interview with the great Amy Ray. I kind of want to jump into the record a little bit. Okay. Um, I I've listened now a couple times, and I'm just like I like I love it so much. It it, it has everything about like I don't know. I'm I'm kind of cynical with country music because it's I feel like it's such a it's weird. It, there's like this you know, it's it's not what it I mean that goes without saying. It's not what it once was, in the at least in the mainstream sense. But like, I mean I guess. You know Jason Isbell and Sergio Simpson and people like that are sort of like kind of spearheading the resurgence of like real country. But this, like your record to me, there. Well, one, it, it seems like it's a lot larger in scope than the last country record. But it also, it also feels like there's elements of kind of everything that that you've done, even in just like, sort of like the pacing and like energy of certain songs, kind of have a punk sort of thing. Yeah. Um, sure. I mean, I know, was that, like, intentional? Like, what what kind of made you go in, in this direction, even with, like, putting horns on the songs and that sort of thing?
1: Well, the horns were
3: inspired by, directly by this record by a guy named Jim Ford called Harlan County that someone turned me on to, and I listened, and I was like, oh, I love the sound, and it was just the way he did his horns was so good and it's that late 60s yeah. horns, and, horns and country thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so that was a direct influence for sure
0: um i was listening to blake mills a lot his last record is insane
3: it was, yeah it's just so good yeah just so like good at just breaking the barriers and just having things be wide open so that kind of yeah. inspired me to make sure I didn't limit myself kind of thing but but I wanted to make a country record you know that was southern but on this record I think you know I, I didn't stay away from you know uh, society kind of stuff about not really strictly politics but just our you know being a southerner just kind of the things that we wrestle with mm-hmm. as southerners our history and and the present, and just how we wrap our minds around all that, and so, you know, that was something that I wanted to, that I was addressing mentally, anyway, as so I came out of my songs, and yeah, so it was different from Good Night Tender, and it just was a little bit more active in that way.
0: Yeah, well, um, well, well, that was something that yeah. that I, I kind of wanted to ask about was like, it. I mean, you've always done this to an extent, but it seems like on this record lyrically, you are sort of wrestling a lot more with like, you know, being a proud Southerner living in this day and age and, and living in, in, in a red state in particular. It's such a weird, um, I, I'd imagine being someone who's born, born in the South in particular, like it's a weird feeling to have when you are so connected to like your Southern heritage and your Southern roots, but there's so, there's this other side of it that's so dark and like all this stuff in it and it seems like that was um is that like was that like a theme on the record or was that just something that was like organic
3: um (laughs) you know how it is when you write in a certain i think it was more like okay i'm i'm writing all these songs and it's during this period of time and so what's happening is this is what I'm thinking about right now. So it becomes a theme even when you don't intend it to be just because it's where your head's at, you know? Right. And so, and I, I probably in some instances might have, um, been working on songs that might not fit in with what seemed to be what's happening on this record. And so I put them aside kind of thing. So there definitely was a, at some point I saw
1: a direction that was happening. Yeah. You know, and then I think that that,
3: it just, and so it kind of steered me in a way of what I was writing and
1: mm-hmm.
3: and what became, like, what I would focus on as yeah. far as finishing songs or, or really knowing it would work, you know?
0: Is that is that something that always happens in, in your process, or was that kind of, like, really only with this record where you've experienced that kind of snowball effect? It,
3: It happened for um it actually happened on Goodnight Tender too where I I had some songs that were kind of hanging together in a certain way and I wanted to make a record that was less attached to present kind of issues and more like uh not I wouldn't say apolitical, but time in a way timeless, a little more timeless. You know, so there might be a song that has like a Woody Guthrie vibe in the way of talking about humanity, but it wouldn't be directly like Jesus was a walking man talking about specific countries and specific wars and refugees and all this, you know? So it was a different, and I think on Goodnight Tender, I really, I had a very clear intention that I didn't want that to enter into the process because I just wanted to make this thing that was kind of free of all that Um, It was an exercise to just see if I could do it, really, too. Um, And with this record, I wouldn't have been able to do that because I feel like I'd already done it also, and, and I wanted to move to another place, and I wanted, and I had this feeling where I kind of missed some of the punk rock stuff that I had been doing, and so it kind
0: of leaked out in very nuanced ways here and there, you know? yeah. The other cool thing that I I really love about this record is that you, I feel like kind of know me in this way. Like I, I like records that that feel like like um, really like you know there's a thread kind of thing and 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 yeah, so yeah, yeah, you are like that. Yeah. yeah, like I'm I'm a kind of an an album guy in, in that way. So there yeah. so hearing like like you know like pr- like the different. Um, Kind of like the prelude, that kind of thing, and like those sort of um, kind of intermittent pieces that are shorter and that sort of thing. It all feels like it, it feels. It's like the perfect like kind of album for my for my ear. Like so, having those those little moments happen. Like, was that directly inspired by any particular album or any particular thing, or or were were those like pieces of music that you sort of that weren't becoming like full-on, like, three-minute songs or whatever, and then you were just like, oh, we can we can make this into, a, like, a little musical piece, or how did, how did that part of it happen? Because well, you've never really done that before. Right?
3: No, I hadn't, and, and Brian Spicer, um, the producer who produced this, mm-hmm. wanted to do something like that, and yeah. I said, and we were talking about it, and I said, well, I've got... What I have is, like, you know, this song, Sparrow's Boogie, I actually started writing that as a ballad, and so we could use my earlier form of that of what it used to be before I turned it into like the boogie song that it is. Yeah. And then we could team that up with um, just a piece of, of this lullaby, which, it, which I had finished, but we just decided to use a piece of it on the record and then have it as like a bonus, as like a hidden track on the CD and like a bonus track on the record on the yeah. LP. So, and then the prelude like the intro to the, to the record, Brian just wanted to do that. He wanted to have it feel like you were kind of still in like Goodnight Tenderland with like, mm-hmm. that kind of vibe, mellow, cowpunk kind of riding across the plains vibe, right. and then have it bust wide open and it sure feels good. So he had this whole. So that was like his his vision. Um, you know, first. So, so yeah. So yeah, it was. It was. Really, Brian, as a producer, you know, really stepped in on this record, and um, yeah, and he he kind of directed it that way.
0: Well, it's it's really cool, and and the other kind of cool thing is like like I think on my second listen is sort of when I realized it. Um, I it feels like a record that sort of belongs in the like late '60s and kind of early '70s sort of. Transitional country music, where it was sort of com- bringing in elements of R and B and that sort of thing, but and and but it also feels really like modern too. And then and then so on my, I think on my second listen, I was uh, like, the the first piece had just kind of ended and it was going into sure feels good, and the first line popped out about texting and 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 at this point I'm like I'm <laughs> uh, you know in my life I'm like totally used to the idea of people writing songs that include lyrics about texting because it's just the yeah. but like. I was completely, like, for, for for a second it was, like, kind of shocking because I was just like, oh, right, this is a modern record because it, fe- it doesn't <laughs> feel like that. So it was like, oh, this is a weird. Like, this is, like, you know, sort of, like, a time machine or something. It was, like, a weird feeling of, like, oh, wow, this is, like, this old school record and then there's this line about texting. It was really kind of, like, jarring for a second but in, in like, a good way. But, yeah,
3: it's funny because I, I definitely would not have said texting on Goodnight Tonight. You know what I mean? That's, <laughs> right. Like, you really call it, like, the one thing. Like, that's something that would not, like, that I would have edited that out of the song for Goodnight Tender on purpose.
0: But I think it's it's great because it, it sort of brings it back to, like, hey, this is still like a new, it's a, this is, you know, we're still in 2018 sort of thing, but but it's cool because it, you're, you feel so transported to, like, that period of time where this, a lot of this music was prominent, like. That it does, it was a moment of like whoa that's really really interesting but it's good that it sort of keeps you grounded and like that's what it felt like anyway is that it keep that yeah, that's cool. that's hot, a line like that yeah it keeps you Very grounded cool. but but yeah that that's that that was kind of an interesting moment in that in that second listen but there's there's so many different like really interesting kind of things happening on on the record and like and sparrow was a song that like there, there's like like, interesting, like, timing things that, that, that are happening, too. I was like, whoa, that's really cool. And, the, and there's also, like, slight tempo shifts and stuff. So was that, were you tracking it all live to, like, are you using a click at all, or, or were you just sort of doing it live so you could kind of push tempo and stuff like that where needed?
3: It was all live. Um, the only thing that wasn't live was that the strings and horns played as section, they played live as a section to tape, but the songs had already been recorded but um it was a whole section at a time right um and then all the guest vocals were done like, kind of remotely um but yeah we it depended on the song sometimes we used a drum a click track line and some we didn't yeah we we did it sometimes because it just messed up the feel of the song you know right so it was always jim rock the drummer it was always, like his decision um because we knew there were, you know, that we would shift around a little bit in certain songs.
1: Mm-hmm. And it had to be a comfortable shift
3: where it wouldn't make it wouldn't be distracting, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, sometimes the click track would would be hard to move around with. And yeah. I mean, I've played with drummers before that like to always have a click track and they yeah. move around within the click, like Matt Chamberlain, where you where you can change tempos within the click. But it he he's just listening to it, and you're not, so. It's a guide for him, but it's not. It's and you're just kind of following him, right? And you can, you know, you can do it that way. But for us as a band, the way we play, we just sometimes the click just wasn't working, and sometimes it it kept us completely in line, so it was great.
1: Yeah.
0: So how did you get Vince Gill on the record? Vince Gill Uh of Vince Gill of of the Eagles, I should add, which is kind of a weird. Yeah. Like it's it's weird that I'm saying Vince Gill of the Eagles and like Neil Finn of Fleetwood Mac is kind of I can't believe like. That's the world we're in now, but it's amazing. But yeah, how, how did he end up on the record? Um, I got so lucky. I mean, he
3: is someone that I heard. You know, I love his voice. And in my head, I was like, I hear that voice on this song. I hear Brandy Carlisle on the song, and yeah. I hear Vince Gill on the song. Yeah. And and I, I was like, I know I can get. I know I can. I don't know I can get Brandy, but I know I can ask Brandy. Right. And I don't know Vince. So I was talking about it just casually around Allison Brown who's a banjo player who lives in Nashville who knows everybody and she was like I know Vince, he's a friend um do you want me to ask him for you and I was like yes <laughs> yes,
0: yes please
3: <laughs> and they grew up they grew up playing music together like they played when they were both really young they both kind of played around different bluegrass scenes so um so yeah they they know each other and he's quite the uh, He's quite a nice guy. He's quite the gentleman. He's like the prince of Nashville. He's like just polite and willing yeah. to help people out. And I can't say enough good about him. But, but so, yeah, like he was a lucky, just a lucky thing, you know.
0: That's amazing. That's, that's yeah. really incredible. So the last thing that I um, kind of had was, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've, I always credit you guys with, I mean a, a lot, but, um, you know, Particularly, like I feel like I've learned a lot from from you guys about like, you know, investing in like production and putting on a show and, and that sort of thing. And, and we've made a lot of strides in that way. But you you've also with with the solo stuff, like you're you're driving a van and you're loading in your own stuff and there's no crew and stuff like that. And like so, as somebody who sort of sees both sides of the coin very often, like, is there one thing you prefer, or do you, do you, do you like the sort of DIY side of it? Um, I, love the process. Yeah. Um,
3: and, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say I prefer it, because there, there's like, really good things about, like, I like, like, with the Indigo Girls, I like the camaraderie of the crew, and, teamwork right. in that level and just, and
1: it's easier, you know, in some ways I can get a lot more work done when
3: I'm on the road with Indigos and a lot more songwriting. Cause mm-hmm. I'm just, my job is to be a musician. Right. But, but I do love the process of touring solo and driving. And I like to finish a show, get in the van and go to a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> Not like get on a tour bus and try to sleep in a, in book a bus. Bed that's really built for a baby, you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. um, like we're all children we're like living a constant childhood in bunk beds on a tour bus right um and i like you know unloading my amp and redoing my and like getting my wires like everybody's always like can i help you can i help you and i'm always like no like i actually enjoy this like awesome. i enjoy the meditation of cleaning your stuff up after you play and wrapping your wires up and sticking everything back and where it belongs and it just feels so satisfying to me yeah you know it's a weird like control control thing, but also like a a compulsive, like just, just need to have things in order and,
1: you know, it's just like
3: OCD, it's like my OCD, it feeds my OCD, Yeah. you know, Um, and and it makes me feel more connected to the gig, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, I don't ever make any money, you know, and so it just becomes seriously a labor of love.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Like, there's no other reason to be out there doing it because I'm not making money and if money was the point, I wouldn't be doing it so I right. know that I'm doing it for the right reasons. is just the love of it, you know?
0: Yes, Amy Ray on the call up. Wow. Uh, what a great first episode. I mean, i that's what I think anyway. I, I hope you agree. <laughs> um... Again, I just I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. I'm going to do this as much as I can. I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great platform for um, you know, to put the conversations that I have out uh in a, you know, less uh concise format and um I'm looking forward to seeing what we can really do with this and um you know, I want it to be locally centric, but I also think it's just good to hear about music and really dissect music a little more so this is what this is and um i can't thank y'all enough for tuning in and listening to this i hope it's been an, an enjoyable listen and i hope that you uh now have three artists that maybe you didn't weren't aware of before or some new records that you weren't aware of before go listen to parker go listen to maria go listen to amy because you're in for some beautiful music um music is my life it's my passion it's what i do so i hope that comes across and I hope I can provide that for y'all. So thank you so much for listening. Um, Until next time, hopefully very soon, this has been The Call-Up from Connect Savannah. I'm your arts and entertainment editor, Sean Kelly, and I will see you next time.